Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. As the jingle indicates, we are on Ask a Leader. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guests today will be Sister Eileen McNerney and Shauna Smith, founder and CEO, respectively, of Taller San Jose, which provides undereducated, unskilled young adults who've gotten off track in life with the job training and rehabilitation necessary to find employment at a living wage. And you might have seen that recent article Steve Lopez wrote in the LA Times about the founding member, Sister McNerney. We'll talk to her and her CEO, as I said, the second half of the program. We'll hear from Anglican Bishop Christopher Senyonjo and his wife, Mary Senyonjo of Uganda, and Reverend Canon Albert Ogle of San Jose, San Diego, pardon, to talk about the scourge of homophobia and its unwieldy public health consequences in Uganda and around Africa. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on Ask a Leader this morning. It is my pleasure to have Sister Eileen McNerney, a member of the Congregation of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Orange, founded, founding, uh, founder of Taller San Jose in 1995 in response to the high rate of crime and gang violence among the city of Santa Ana's youth and the lack of resources available to young people. Um, who after either dropping out of school or have been incarcerated. Now, Sister Eileen has served as executive director for 13 years before transitioning to her new role as president emeritus in 2008. She continues to live and work in Santa Ana. She's currently the assistant general superior of the St. Joseph's of Orange. A talented painter, writer, and public speaker, Sister Eileen has also focused on giving a voice to a forgotten population. See me, hear me is a compilation of poetry written by Taller San Jose students that was born out of Sister Eileen's persistent efforts to help students capture their lives' words. Shauna Smith, now the CEO of Taller San Jose, is with us as well. For more than 12 years, she's worked with Taller San Jose to advance the lives of thousands of young men and women marginalized by the conditions of barrios into which they were born. Having worked as a volunteer among the poor of Central Orange County, California, and providing emergency assistance services to support families on the edge of homelessness, she learned about the satisfaction in choosing work to work in the social service sector. Shauna, alongside uh, growing this organization, you've witnessed lives turning completely around. Shauna and Sister Eileen, thank you for coming on Ask a Leader. Thanks for asking us. They're both coming from us, uh, from Santa Ana, over uh, the phones, and we're so glad that you're here. 
Uh, Sister Eileen, the moment I've been waiting for, and I know listeners who want to know more about Taller San Jose, um, and we, you can give us the, the definition of this. It's, it's beautiful, it's succinct, and it's comprehensive. The Taller San oh, the, Jose the choice. Taller San Jose. Si. In Spanish, uh, the word Taller means a shop, a workshop, a place you get things fixed for the most part. It also is, um, refers to a place where you can learn. Uh, but we looked at it as um, a place where young people, if their lives were broken early and they needed to move ahead, where they could come and put their lives back together again with a lot of help and skills. Thank you so much. And I would like to know then, where did you come up with this kind of program that you've developed? It's so successful. I was living in uh, the early 1990s in a gang-ridden neighborhood in Santa Ana, and that's where I saw young people really trapped. I saw young people killed on the streets. I saw the gangs walking by my house at night and then the action afterwards. I saw young women uh, trapped in hot, stuffy apartments after, you know, they've had uh, a couple unplanned pregnancies. And I just began to see that... um, they were, they were stuck, and they needed a way forward. Um, at that time in the early 1990s in Santa Ana, the gang killings were really atrocious. They, you know, they were in the 60s and early 70s. Young people might be killed um, in any given year, and that was really new in Orange County. And folks were really alarmed, and I was alarmed. I didn't see a lot. I heard a lot of talk, but I didn't see a lot happening to solve that. So um, with, I guess, the background that I had in education and counseling and with some funding that I believe the sisters could provide, I just felt that we could at least take a bite out of that issue. And uh, we then had to really learn from these young people. Um, I wouldn't say that I was naive, but they certainly opened my eyes once they came into the program. They taught us what we needed to do. That is a marvel, and what I was alluding to when I was saying that Shauna Smith was growing in the organization along with the the results growing and, and moving all that are involved. Um, I, it's just, just a marvel, and as you two talk about your work there, I want you at any time to break in with a, a, a story of any one individual that helps uh, helps us understand how the programs worked and what are these results. So it's um, it's any time because I know there uh, there are phenomenal results that you have. So um, what I find amazing is that your staff is able to follow up the each well I don't know do you call it this uh, each case or what's the term used for each individual in the program each student or each by that time graduate a gra- okay yeah. so. Um, the follow-up for these graduates um, is a 24-month, um, I don't know, monitoring and uh, collaboration. How did you come up with this essential formula? Because I know of other other similar types uh, or some things that try to do something similar but not in the similar, not the same template don't have nearly this kind of a follow-up. But you knew it was going to take up to two years to make this work. I, um, I'm going to really throw that to Shauna because she was the strength behind that part of the program. Indeed. How, however, the, um, I think what we did, we, we, we used the, uh, our mission as to walk 
young people out of poverty. And we do not take that lightly. Those words are very serious to us. And I think that's what gave birth to how Shauna strengthened that program with the uh, follow-through for graduates. Yes, Shauna. Well, thanks, Sister Eileen. And, and that actually is absolutely the motivation that a young person, you know, it's, it's um, if you think about it, it's just not logical to think that a young person after a few weeks uh, completing one of our job training programs, and those, those programs run 16 weeks in length, would have all the issues and barriers of po- the poverty that they live in uh, fixed, and life would then be perfect. And so, you know, this is really our commitment to that mission and walking alongside those young people. And, and also really, uh, in a lot of ways, we're making a very intense investment in their personal development, their professional development, their uh, job readiness. And we want to make sure that, that that is a wise investment by continuing to provide the support and mentoring and coaching that they need sort of once they leave the nest and uh, begin to fly out there in the real world, that they have the support they need to be successful and actually achieve self-sufficiency uh, and grow into the young, adult, young adulthood that will support that. Fine. And the um, what? Um, how do the youth come to you? How do they know? I mean, there's there's m- many different ways, but let's. What are the many different ways, and what's the preponderance of, of means for them uh, starting up with you? Oh, well, the we majority of young people that program. come here are actually be- referred by other young people who have participated in our programs. Oh. It's somewhere between sixty and sixty-five percent are referred by a friend or relative who's participated in our programs. And you know, Sister Eileen has a saying that they vote with their feet. And it's absolutely true. Um, That's a very important measure for us, that what we're doing is meaningful to their lives and actually results in change. So we use our students uh, to recruit others and to spread the good word. But we also do a lot of active outreach in the community. We have a staff member who, that's that's her job. She goes out and uh, goes to community centers. She goes to health fairs. She uh, works with probation and parole. Uh, she works with other community-based organizations to con- connect their clients to our, our services at Tayer. So that's a, an extremely important connection. You're right there when the the probationary officers are deciding the next step, along with their with their they call them cases. I think. Mm-hmm. So you were also Sister Eileen. You also had something to say while Shannon was talking about this uh, effective word of mouth uh, outreach, among other ways of getting the well, youth in. I think the issue is that. Um, when we, when we think that young people are probably stuck, scared, and in hiding, then we don't kind of wait passively and say, we've got a great program, they'll find us. We actually go seeking for them. And, and how do you go about that? Pretty well. How does that look like, Sister McNern, Sister Eileen? Well, it, it's uh, part of what Shauna was sharing, that um, having an active recruitment director, someone who goes to neighborhood meetings, oh. who's working with... Uh, with young people ready to we're ready to get them when they come out of probation or parole. Okay. We're just we're just um, always looking and ready um, and actively searching for young people who need help and there are plenty of them. I wonder if some are as you said sort of waiting scared and then one of you one of your staff is uh, contacts them and they're probably saying, "I hoped you'd come to me. I hoped I'd, I'd hope we'd meet finally, or something." That must have happened a few times. That's right. And uh, 
sometimes we've used the churches, you know, to go out and, and speak, and, um, you know, sometimes it's the mother or the grandmother who will bring the flyer home and say, I heard about this program today. You're sitting on the couch doing nothing. I think this would be good for you. So we just use every avenue we can to get the word out. Well, I think this is amazing, and I, I was aware of the Amy Beale Foundation when Amy, after Amy Beale was killed, her family picked up the cause of various projects around um, in South Africa with lots of at-risk populations, and they were able to. Well, we'll have her mother Linda Beale on here someday. I'm hoping, and she uh, she has fanned out in a similar way with her paraprofessionally trained social workers to go to churches and go to places they don't have though nearly this kind of follow-up that you're talking about for them to turn around these at-risk situations. Um, so this this is a phenomenal template. Are you getting inquiries from other nonprofits, other uh, court uh, systems around the state and the country for what's been working so effectively at Taller San Jose, both of you? Absolutely. I think, you know, especially these days, the issue of connecting people to jobs uh, and jobs where they uh, will have sustained employment over time, um, and this issue that we have in our state of overcrowded prison and jail systems, that there's a lot of interest in now in other models that are successfully moving young people in particular who aren't who uh, are not hardened criminals uh, many times, but have headed down a pathway um, of you know bad choices and need to be redirected. Um, the community is really looking, and, and policymakers are looking to say, what are other options we have? Because these young people are coming back to our community unprepared to be productive citizens. And and I think what Tayera San Jose has been able to show is that with the right kind of support and with really focused training and with a longer period of support, you can rehabilitate a young person and move them back to be a productive member of their community and support a family and, and all the things that we would hope you know, for our young people in our communities. It's a, a remarkable sort of a stepwise kind of um, chart that you show on your website. And I want to make sure everyone gets a chance to, to look up the website at www.tallersanjose.org. And Taller is spelled T A. Double L E R, tallersanjose.org. And you can see the steps that, um, you know, the education is the first thing to get going. And then working on sort of job uh, skills, uh, ability to interact with prospective employers, working all the way up. There's even voting, <laughs> knowing you're voting. So some of them haven't, um, they haven't been uh, disqualified from from their voting privilege anyway when you've get, gotten to them so that you can work all the way up to, to those goals to put these citizens all together in one piece. I think Absolutely. that's when um, Shana was sharing about the huge um, issue we have with incarceration here in California, that incarceration is one of a major industry in our state and a very costly one. And so what we're concerned about is when young people have been in jail or prison a time or two or three or four, how do they get out of that cycle? Because actually, many of them are horrified by their experiences in jail or prison. They don't ever want to go back. However, they have not changed their lifestyle. And so they're, they're kind of got a foot on the banana peel unless they make significant changes in their lives. And so um, that's what we really work at, these 
seven steps to success to help them uh, get on the other side of the law and see themselves as um, you know productive uh, giving citizens rather than those who are takers I'm thinking of uh, actually there's a young man that looks oh, next door to, to me that it was in that cycle of drugs and jail drugs and jail and at, at Tayer San Jose, we deal with 18 to 28-year-olds. Well, he was pushing 27, and his family had just nearly given up hope on him when uh, they encouraged him to go to Tayer San Jose. I think he was old enough and hungry enough to grab hold of that program and pull himself up. And he just recently, uh, as a graduate of Tayer San Jose, uh, applied to get into the uh, Steelworkers Union, I think it is, where he will be getting $23 an hour. So that's what we're really concerned about. How do we get students up from, from the hole they're standing in to a living wage? That's a remarkable story. Um, and Shauna, have you something also? I, I really hope we all get to, uh, to become privy to a, some of these remarkable turnarounds that you have both been personally responsible for. Absolutely. I, you know, I have many stories that come to mind. Yes. As Sister Eileen was talking, I was thinking about uh, this young um, girl named Estrella who recently graduated from our clinical medical assisting program who um, sort of, she, she finished high school, but she really, she wasn't really there. She didn't take it, the, her education seriously. And when she graduated, she um, didn't have any plans. And she didn't really have her family urging her to advance herself. And she also got caught up in, in drug and alcohol abuse and, and ended up in jail. And uh, in that experience, it really awakened her. And she thought, I, this is not how I want to spend my life. And, and so she, while she was um, incarcerated, heard about Tayer San Jose and came to our medical careers program. She recently just graduated and got hired as a medical assistant with a local clinic here in Orange County. And so that just goes to show she, we were able to intervene earlier mm-hmm. and help her from continuing a bad cycle and to, to see her glow with the pride and the sense of herself. She sort of discovered that she was good at something and that she could really learn and excel and that she cared to be of service to other people and to do that in the healthcare uh, field is um, how she wants to express that. And you see young people really find what they're good at and where their value is and how they can contribute that. It has a transformative effect. I guess and, uh, transformative. You've taken the banana peel, as you say, away. You've put bricks for them to build the strongest possible foundation of uh, satisfaction, uh, self-worth, and that kind of a thing to uh, put together a mm-hmm. whole productive and satisfying life. Absolutely, and I, I would I say one of, one of the things, things that I think makes Tayer San Jose so Shauna, one moment. Just, you're saying, Sister Eileen? Okay. I think if, if the young people don't have a life, they don't have much to lose. If you don't have a job, you don't have a car, you don't uh, you know, have a driver's license, you don't have a, any money, then it's, it's sort of easy to throw your life over. But once they begin to build a life, they're less reluctant to lose it. Yes. And Shauna? Well, and I, I was just going to say, I think one of the things that makes Tayer San Jose so successful is that they are all young adults, and therefore we expect them to, you know, this is not Tayer San Jose doing all the work to better their lives. 
they have to be active members in that process and they have to have a little skin in the game. We're providing the opportunity, but it's what they do with it that builds their future and it builds the foundation because once they're beyond us, they have to have the, the, abil the ability, the confidence, and, and feel empowered to continue on that pathway. And do these graduates, do they return as role models, as, a, as um, other kinds of contributors to Taller San Jose? They do. And in fact, um, as you were asking that question, I was thinking about one of our yes. earlier graduates, Raul, who recently um, came by just to reconnect and bring his 10-year-old son for a tour of his school because it was important for him to show his son this is where our family life began to change. Mm. And to show, you know, he's held a good job for many years now and has uh, worked with the county and, and done many great things and is a good father to his, his children and a good husband to his wife. And um, so they come back because they, they're part of this extended family, and certainly they come back as volunteers. Um, they come and sit on panels during our orientation of new students and tell them, you know, this was my experience, this is what made me successful. You can do it too. Provide that kind of peer support and encouragement. Wonderful. Um, I wanted to um, ask too, um, since I'm sure on everybody's minds, is how you're able to keep this together financially. I note that only 8% of your funds are coming from government sources. The larger share are private donations. How in these financial times is that working out for Taller San Jose? It's always a challenge, and I'll let Shauna speak to that. But I think we started early on recognizing that um, we didn't want to lean heavily on government funds and be too dependent on that because those programs are usually written in Washington or some other place, and they don't always work on the street. And we knew if the, if the program didn't work, we wanted to change it. Well, once you've taken a lot of government money, you've got to follow that money, and you don't get to change it. So we developed an early capacity to um, get funding and to really um, speak to the issue, especially in Orange County, to get people all over the county invested in this program. And I think when you were early introducing me and said, Sister Eileen paints and writes, I would start painting and writing about Tyre San Jose just to get it in people's imagination. But today's challenge really uh, is falling on Shauna, so I'll let her speak to that. Yes, Shauna. Thank you, Sister Eileen. Well, you know, um, exactly what Sister Eileen has said is true. And I, I think, you know, Claudia, as you have said yourself, Tyre San Jose has a compelling mission. People care that young people have opportunities in their community, and they also care um, that, you know, the, their, their money is spent wisely. So they like to see that there's a result for the contributions that they make. And I, I think over the years, Tayer San Jose has been able to show that we really can help move young people out of poverty and build self-sufficiency. Um, and so because of that, they, those individuals um, in the community that really resonate with our mission have been very faithful in their support. Um, they continue to invite other people to learn about the organization. And, you know, it is, uh, it is a lot of hard work, and, and certainly over the past few years it has been more difficult um, to fundraise because people's individual resources are, are more stretched than they might have been. 
Um, but what we've seen is that um, the number of people haven't haven't uh, hasn't changed. Maybe the size of their gift has, uh-huh. but the number of people hasn't, and that's important because it it really shows a commitment from the community that we care about this, these young people. We care they have opportunities, and we continue to share those stories. And the opportunities are for our listeners to take away. You can, as the website talks about, you can share your knowledge and your career insight while seeing the incredible growth of these young people achieving uh, that they achieved during their time there at Taller San Jose. So you can all uh, find out how you can be involved by reaching the project's manager. That's uh, Laura Palmer. We'll name her by name. Um, she's available there. at. Uh, you can check it out at the website. I think that's easiest to save um, the time on that. As I said, TallerSanJose.org. Uh, also, um, there's the tours. The next tour will be on September 13th at 1 p.m. And if you happen to miss that one, you have another chance on October 11th at 8.30 a.m. And follow the website for other planned tours. And I also know from my my delightful Christian connection here with uh, Taller San Jose, the uh, divine advancement um, professional there, uh, who tells me that uh, you have ongoing a raffle going for uh, tickets, $100 tickets on sale for a Chevy Volt. And I understand from Krista that the deadline is September 9th. That's correct. So you can purchase a ticket to win the Chevy Volt, which is an electric car, uh, one ticket for 100 or um, six tickets for 500 Six tickets for And I understand only 800 tickets are being sold, so chances are hard to get better than that. So um, there's many ways we all can follow up with uh, tracking the progress, contributing toward the progress, uh, spreading word of mouth that we know where there there may be a new entity that Taller San Jose hasn't quite approached that where we can all try to bring those connections together because it's a, I don't even know, uh, 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 Shauna Smith, have you even endeavored to figure out what a dollar of your money goes toward saving in uh, incarceration, public uh, support, um, and, and that kind of, th- those kinds of funds? Have you, I mean, I know other nonprofits figure out what their dollar outlay gets back in savings to the government. Have you ever had a chance to do that, or are you still working you know, on that? Here's how I would say that, that um, it costs about $45,000 annually to incarcerate a young person. And right now, our state recidivism rate is about 75% of those incarcerated will reoffend within two years. Only 8% of Tayer students reoffend. So you can do the math and see the savings. Wow. That's that's going to rack it up. And so I really am glad we had your both of your uh, availability today to be on our show. I thank you so much, Sister Eileen McNerney and Shauna Smith, uh, founder and CEO, respectively, of Taller San Jose. Thank you, and good luck to you in your future endeavors. I hope that we get a little... Uh, we get uh, some support from those listening to here. And for those who uh, missed this, they'll be able to hear on the podcast uh, coming out shortly. Thank you so much, Sister Eileen McNerney and Shauna Smith, for being on Ask a Leader this morning. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Claudia. Good luck to you both. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was a real treat to hear what we have um, going on right under our noses. 
I want to uh, keep you with me for the next half of the Ask a Leader program here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm so sorry I forgot to keep announcing our um, um, speakers then. Uh, so we will do a better job in the second half. Now, uh, after um, this short break, we'll be talking with Bishop Christopher Senyonjo, who will talk about the scourge of AIDS in his Uganda around Africa and um, and we'll connect the dots all the way back to Orange County. So stay tuned. Found I was blind, but now I see. Well, thank you for thank you for joining us on Ask a Leader. We are going to uh, talk with. Um, Bishop Christopher, uh, I'm going to start the show. You're welcoming back. Welcome back. Ask a leader. Uh, I just want to make sure I have my friends on here. Um, we are going to talk now. Uh, previously on Ask a Leader, we talked with Reverend uh, Albert, uh, Reverend Ken Albert Ogle, about the homophobic movement here um, in Uganda and spreading around Africa. Uh, Today with us, Anglican Bishop Christopher Nyonjo is granting us with this special opportunity for an interview on this program while he tours Southern California on his U.S. and World Awareness Fundraising Tour. Um, we have also with us his wife, uh, Mary Senyonjo, who herself has uh, done special work on behalf of women, which we'll talk about later in the program. Their family has been ostracized in Uganda, like the lay, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual um, community. Also with us is Reverend Canon Albert Ogle, who was previously, as I said, with our show. We'll t- welcome all of you to the show this morning. Are you there? I want everyone to speak right straight into the into your telephone so we can all hear you. Can we go ahead? Yes, let's go ahead. Okay, we can hear Reverend Christopher. I want to uh, Mary Sanyonjo. Can you speak right into the phone? Yes, please. Okay, wonderful. Well, I thank you all for being here. I want to make sure I had everything properly patched in this morning. I'm sorry about that. You we're all talking to, as I said, Christopher. Bishop Christopher Senyonjo, who has been an outspoken advocate for human rights in Uganda. He's taken great risks in defense of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual um, people in his country, a nation where lawmakers recently considered imposing a death penalty on homosexuals. He will address the homophobic anti-gay movement and legislation pending in Uganda as his tour continues. Um, he was included in the Huffington Post religion's 10 most influential people of 2010 just last year. And so, as I said, he's joined by us with his wife and uh, Reverend Canon Albert. Let's talk about your tour and some of the issues around global criminalization of homosexuality. uh, Bishop Christopher, please tell us what you are doing on your tour, which brings you to Southern California uh, these next two weeks. Yeah. I'm here because I'm really concerned about the plight of what it is what we call LGBT. These people in my country 
are suffering a lot because of bad news being preached in the name of, actually, what some people call the gospel. The gospel means good news, but if you start preaching and driving other people who are LGBT from church because they suffer from abuse and rejection, and uh, this is brought about because of what people try to preach. You know what I call a fundamentalist approach to the Bible. Uh, you create hatred instead of love and violence and fear. So you find people in Uganda who are LGBT are so much threatened that uh, many, many would really like to even seek refuge for other countries. And uh, this was aggravated when the uh, Bahati Bill was being uh, considered and it be debated in, uh, starting in 2009. Um, it's such a draconian bill, which uh, we believe it is because of the preaching of the gospel by the Christian right in such a way that uh, it creates this hatred which I'm talking about. And uh, our request, or my request would be, we should be careful that uh, we preach love, because Christ is love. And my main concern on this tour is to find how we describe a compass to compassion. Compass to compassion. That's the name of the tour that you're leading your entourage around. To, yeah, Compass to uh, Compassion. That is the name or the theme of my tour. And I'm glad that you mentioned that the, this fundamentalist movement um, is uh, uh, the, the root of the, the hatred being fomented against the LGBT community. And I had spoken with Reverend Canon Albert Ogle in February in an interview on this program where we connected the dots right to where those congregations are assembled here in Orange County, and one of whom would be uh, Reverend Rick Warren of the Saddleback Community Church. Have you, Bishop Christopher, had an opportunity to have any kind of dialogue with Reverend Rick Warren while you've been touring in Southern California? Unfortunately, I've not met him. But if I did, I know he's trying to bring good news to the people, but uh, probably there is some kind of uh, misinformation, uh, mis uh, the way the message is passed on, because I find it has created hatred. And uh, this kind of bill, which uh, we are trying to fight, the anti-homosexuality bill, which regards the homosexuals as non-human beings because the way they are going to be treated 
it shows that uh, they're not human. So it's not not just criminals, but non-humans to ostracize to the lowest level of society these yeah, they're, individuals. They're not criminals. I wouldn't. No, I mean, I thought the characterization was of criminal. It's criminalizing their behavior, but rendering their character as less than human. Yeah, that's right. To me, it is because of uh, misunderstanding of what human sexuality is about. For many, for many, many people, when we read the Bible in the fundamentalist way, we only think about heterosexuality as the only human way of living a sexual kind of life. But uh, from my understanding, counseling for 10 years now, I've discovered for sure that uh, human sexuality is not just homosexuality. It is both. And this should be given their due respect. And you... Um, I think it was in response, was it, to the 2009 uh, legislation proposed that not only ostracized gays, but um, was um, debating a death sentence for various uh, gay, so-called gay conduct. You created in, or you founded in 2010, the St. Paul's Reconciliation and Equality Center for LGBT. Uh, and Straight Alliance. Can you talk to us about the mission of this organization you founded just a year ago? Yeah. The mission of the organization is to work closely between, I could use uh, just the gay and straight people, meaning LGBT and straight people, really working together. We have, for instance, three programs. One is HIV-AIDS program, where we are trying to give uh, service to people with HIV-AIDS to try and discover how this could be prevented and treated and uh, give the support needed to all people without excluding the gay or straight, but Usually the gays have not been having access to these services because of being gay. When you have a law against them, it is difficult for them to come out to yes. access the, treat, the prevention and treatment. So this uh, organization uh, is trying to, sh- to work together with all these people. And in so doing, I think they are realizing that though they are different as far as their sexual orientation is concerned, they are human beings. And the other thing we have, the other program is to deal with the uh, literacy and education, which includes, of course, awareness. So people are educated about their human rights, educated about uh, the dangers of domestic violence, uh, educated even about this, which we are talking about, human sexuality, because I believe that the real problem is lack of information or, or, or misinformation concerning human sexuality. If people really understood from very early, even we as clergy, 
from our seminaries, and we are exposed to understanding human sexuality. We shouldn't take so much time fighting human, the humans who are oriented differently instead of spending time on fighting poverty uh, for ignorance and disease. And you take a lot of time fighting something which is real to another person. For instance, myself, I'm heterosexual. But if you ask me, you shouldn't be heterosexual. It would be making me not a nanny being. Because I believe humans are sexual beings. Some are heterosexuals, others are homosexuals. Or bisexuals, or transsexuals, as the LGBT, LGBT that you've included. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Bishop Christopher Senyonjo and his wife, Mary Senyonjo of Uganda. And back there somewhere, and uh, accompanying us is Reverend Canon Albert Ogle of San Diego. Well, you you raise such important points about your need with the the St. Paul's Reconciliation and Equality Center for LGBT Straight Alliance, that it this is addressing a need that only existed because of the reversal of what was all what was a good trend going on in the 1990s. I understand that there uh, 30 percent of the um, you've reduced in uh, Uganda there was a reduction of the prevalence of the virus from 30 percent to single digit figures. This trend's reversed now with. The fact that now so many gays have to be closeted and they're not coming out and getting the kind of a care. This must be uh, distressful for all concerned who see this public health hazard just open up when it looked like it was going to be a manageable public health issue. And now it's become not just we're not just ostracizing gays. We're also seeing a virulent uh, expansion of this HIV and uh virus as well as uh, in, from Uganda to all over Africa. Yeah, I believe uh, when you have uh, registration against the what we call LGBT and they don't have uh, access to the prevention and treatment of HIV, this has caused, worsened the conditions, uh, the condition of HIV AIDS in Uganda, we were leading, we were leading, and exemplary, and uh, the rates of people infected with HIV uh, AIDS was really decreasing. But I believe if you look at the figures now, it is, we are getting it worse. Many people are becoming more, uh, we have more people now uh, in the bracket of HIV AIDS infection uh, than we had uh, some years ago when we were practicing uh, trying not to prevent people because of their sexual orientation to have access to these uh, needs. And unfortunately, even at the United Nations, the LGBT issues, how they should be gaining access to prevention and treatment of HIV was not even stressed. So I think the concern now would definitely be to decriminalize. There should be a decriminalization of HIV, I mean of LGBT people, decriminalization of LGBT, because 
unless we do this, we are going to have more and more countries uh, criminalizing LGBT and uh, worsening the effect, infection which we have been uh, fighting of HIV AIDS. Bishop Christopher, I, I wanted to ask you, Albert, uh, Reverend Canon Albert, because yeah. uh, I know you've been involved in uh, lobbying around the UN's State Department circles about the fact that the LGBT is- rights issues were not being stressed. Now, they've, there's been some language that's been reinforced in protections, but how can you attribute the UN's diffidence toward um, pr- uh, to reinforcing LGBT rights? Or, and you were going to say something things. else. Yeah. A couple of things are going on. I mean, Uganda is one example. People are familiar with Uganda because of the Bahati Bill, but there are now there are 76 countries like Uganda around the world where uh, to be gay or lesbian is a criminal activity. So if you look through the lens of AIDS, it is illegal to actually provide prevention services and healthcare services to a significant part of the community. Then the community uh, being Uganda, or we're talking about major well, we're African, about, you know, half the planet, we're half the planet. Okay, seventy-six countries where it's illegal to be gay, and therefore, I mean, the bishop is outreaching to the gay and lesbian community, but officially he's giving services to criminals. So nonprofit groups are reluctant to get, you know, to to get in trouble with their governments or get in trouble with society. So. We have a huge institutional problem. Until you decriminalize homosexuality, there is evidence that when homosexuality is decriminalized, people then get access to the information and the services, and HIV prevention goes down. In Uganda in the early 90s, Claudia, Uganda was a model country because the president had the courage to say, we have a problem, we've got to deal with it, and the churches and the mosques and the healthcare system they had a system called ABC, abstinence, be careful, in other words, to limit the number of sexual partners, and C, condom use. And that reduced infection from like 18% to 6%. Around the, uh, but, um, the mid-90s, you had a change of policy that was largely influenced by uh, changes in, in the American government and priorities for funding. Theirs was uh, an evangelical connection there. Yeah, Christian fundamentalism said we have to do abstinence only. So you had family planning clinics um, throughout the third world that were cut. You had uh, major successful AIDS programs that were wiped out. And people like Rick Warren, a very close friend to uh, President Museveni's wife, Janet, were teaching abstinence only. And this, this was a huge disaster in terms of our ability to get ahead of the uh, problem of the spread of AIDS. Okay, so that that's the the current situation with the diffidence of international organizations and international nonprofits, especially, to address a problem because of the, as the criminalization of gays continues, there's no way that um, government regimes can be uh, superseded with a. A, a sort of a general, more humane approach toward uh, HIV literacy, education, treatment, and prevention. Well, you know, what we saw at the UN was that the people on the ground, the civil society groups on the ground, we had about 1,000 people at the UN in, in April, uh, in, uh, in May and June of this year when we were developing the World AIDS Plan. People on the ground know what, what the problem is. It's, it's the politicians and 
the religious leadership in the country, out of the 76 countries that where homosexuality is criminalized, 40 of them are members of the British Commonwealth. And even though the Commonwealth is on record to protect human rights, it's churches like the Anglican Church, my church, and the Roman Catholic Church that are advocating for either the maintenance of these laws on the books from religious, you know, religious and views of, their, of, of the Bible. The big problem is you can be against homosexuality, but is it morally justified for the state to enforce a theological or biblical and interpretive point of view using the state to enforce that to the whole community? Therein is the problem, the, the succinct hazard. Well, I, I know that Ms. Mary Senyonjo is also uh, with us in this interview, and I know you have done very special work with women in Uganda. Are those women showing a, a, a certain kind of uh, receptivity toward uh, this advancing a more compassionate approach towards lesbian, gay, transsexual, bisexual human beings. Miss Mary? Uh, I think people need to be really trained to be compassionate with lesbians and gay. As I am a mother, I have children, but supposing my child is a gay or a Libyan, could I throw him away and agree to kill her or him because he is, she is a Libyan or a gay? So I feel I am supporting my husband in the work he's doing. Myself, at first, I couldn't understand what he was doing. But as far as he has struggled to, to help these people, I come to understand that it is very important to have the love of God who doesn't discriminate between Libyans, LGBTs, and straight people. She loves all of them. So we need to be trained, to be trained so that we could understand the people, because it is not their fault. Supposing I have a child who is lame, could I throw him away because he is lame or she is lame? So that is where we need to be trained to help these people in our country and everywhere so that they could understand why these people are like that. Well, Ms. Mary Sanyonjo, you are the gospel. You are the good news in uh, this revelation uh, with your work alongside your husband. And it's also not just the love of your your husband, and it's the love of your children and everyone's children that's coming through, you must, you must say. Yes, I want. Um, I, I'm so glad that you had a chance to express 
this sort of revelation of your own and your own involvement, everyone is capable of reaching this deeper understanding. And that's what I hope we're able to touch on today. I wanted to uh, mention that for those who are interested in supporting the uh, the the compass and on compassion um, that there is an opportunity if you were to contact one of my guests Reverend Canon Albert Ogle you can call him at his own phone at area code nine four nine three three eight 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 three zero to find out how you can uh, come to a private gathering a, a it's at a private setting, but that we hope it's not too private so that we can uh, see that the Senyonjos bring a, a great deal of support back to Uganda where it's desperately needed. I uh, wanted to remind everyone this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and I'm afraid we have to close. It's the top of the hour at this point, but I wanted to make sure, Bishop Christopher and Mrs. Mary Senyonjo, that we had a chance to give everyone a way of reaching Reverend Canon Albert so they could come to uh, some of the uh, one or two of the events still planned in our area. There is an, a meeting on Thursday night in Santa Ana and the number again to call is 949-338-8830. And I'm so sorry, um, uh, Bishop Christopher Senyonjo, Mary Senyonjo, and uh, Reverend Canon Albert Ogle, we do have to bring this program to a close. I want to thank all three of you for being on the program today, and I hope you'll stay tuned and uh, stay listening to a special piece of music that I'm uh, wanting to play as we go out with this show. And I want to thank you all for being listening today. Thank you. Christo- uh, you, Bishop Christopher, thank you, Reverend Canon Albert, and thank, thank you, Mrs. You. Mary. Thank you, Claudia. God bless you. Thank you. It was love, it was compassion, and it was literacy coming out to, to all of us listening to you. I am so touched. I, I'm so gratified with your being on our program today. Thank you so much, and good luck to all of you. Thank you, and stay listening. I don't want you to hang up yeah. yet. I want you to I hear the to sounds. Okay. Oh, <laughs>